Hey everyone, before we get into today's show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, Coinbase Prime and Ledger. Love these companies, genuinely proud to call them sponsors of the show. You're going to be hearing all about them later from me, but now on with the program. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I am joined as always by my patient co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko, and I'm using patient as an adjective very intentionally because we just went through about 20 minutes of technical difficulties, which is like the worst way to start a podcast ever uh, or Friday morning, uh, but what's going Michael, on, Mark? Michael, Michael, Michael. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I apologize. Uh, technically challenged this morning. The uh, Mac wasn't, camera wasn't working, so now we're on the iPhone, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. All right, so we will uh, we'll start up here with, with the sock reveal. And I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you first off that I am a I am a sock repeater. I got the Bitcoin roller coaster uh, again because uh, it is well because that's what we got. We got the roller coaster going. So yeah. all right, so we got we got a lot of ground to cover today, and actually the roller coaster stocks are still very relevant uh, based on the first charts that we're looking at. But I actually wanted to get your, first of all, I want to congratulate you on the Gemini raise. We're going to be talking all about that later. A uh, ah. huge win uh, for you and Morgan yeah, Creek. Thanks. Freaking awesome. I hope it feels good. Um, and I, I, you know, it I, does. It does. Yeah. It, they're a phenomenal company. Uh, those guys, like, every single time I hear the Winklevoss speak, it's like, man, if I feel like they've got just a window into the future. Um, you know, yep. I, I do want to get your quick take on this. is a clip that literally just happened. I don't know if you saw this clip from Hillary Clinton, uh, but you got Hillary Clinton coming out saying everyone should be more concerned about cryptocurrencies, right? You know, she kind of uses this description. They're mining and it seems like all fun and games, but it could undermine the US dollar, undermine stability in financial markets and nation states. I don't know. It's I, I'm weirdly bullish hearing her say I, that. I, look, I tweeted about it last night, Michael. Mm. All you got to do is replace the word cryptocurrency with US dollar. And she's exactly right. Yeah. And she is intimately familiar. What she tweeted out, those two tweets, they are the job description of the freaking Secretary of State and the CIA. That is their job description. And the idea that the crypto could, you know, hurt their, you know, illicit activities. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it, it's I mean, it's the FUD is so unbelievable. I know. You know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, you know, anytime, you know, we get a little momentum and, and you see more talent and more opportunity and, and more, you know, big ideas, these old guard technocrats, kleptocrats, look, they have been, they, they meaning all of the elites have been stealing from the masses since 1913, actually back further, we go back to the Rothschilds in the 1600s from the first central bank. But that that's what they do. And I, I just why anyone would listen to her now, after no one wanted to listen to her eight years ago, or 16 years ago, however many years ago it was uh, stupid, very stupid. I think the irony is that she's actually exactly right. To be, I mean, this is, I mean, and even if you listen to the rhetoric from our community and my, my hope for this, my hope for crypto in general is that this does pave the way to a better, more equitable future. Um, where I would disagree with, with Hillary is that I actually think this is accretive to the United States. You know, if you look at crypto in general, it's completely antithetical to the entire cultural philosophy of a, of a country like China. I feel like it is very in line with the kind of libertarian mores and values that are really sit at the heart of the United States as a country. 
I view them as actually being very compatible. So there's going to be some friction between now and then, but overall, hundred percent. Yep. I think she's kind of right. I, you know, I think these statements actually aren't even fud. I view them as just bullish. I hear this now and I'm like, damn, I'm bullish. <laughs> uh, but maybe that's just, well, I mean, that, that's actually the right way to look mm. at it, Michael. And, and again, she, she is right. Right. I mean, it, it, it does decentralization does undermine the notion of a nation state. It does undermine the notion of control by a few powerful people. It does undermine uh, the ability of a government to control its citizens through the currency. So yeah, I, I guess I, you're right. You're 100% right. Yeah. All right. Let's get into our chart study. This is where we're going to really sync up uh, with your socks and the Bitcoin roller coaster. Uh, because I'm starting with a pretty wild week that we've had uh, in crypto. It is so funny. I mean, you see these memes if you're on Twitter, but, uh, you know, I mean, there, it really is just a case of, you know, the whole the whole asset class is up like, you know, 10 or 15x. Uh, but every single time there's a 10% pullback, people get really spooked. Yeah. Uh, you know, what we're looking at here is liquidations over a 24-hour period. This was on November 16th. So you had almost a billion dollars of liquidations. But... Um, you know, I, I want to get into a couple of charts, and this comes to us from an interview. You know, we're friends with the Bankless guys. They did just a phenomenal interview with this guy, Benjamin Cohen, who I'm embarrassed to say I'd never watched any of his stuff before now. But I thought, I never think it's a good idea to try to time markets. But man, uh, if you do, if you do try to do that, I would look at this guy's stuff because it is really, really excellent fundamental analysis of different market cycles in crypto. And you know, Mark, you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But what we're looking at here is Bitcoin or crypto cycles since, uh, and you're looking at cycle one, cycle two, cycle three, cycle four. This is, you know, 2009 to 2011, 13 to 14, 17 to 18, and the current one that we're in. And there is this dynamic of uh, both kind of diminishing returns uh, in the overall growth uh, or just uh, capital appreciation in these cycles, but also you do see this lengthening dynamic in general. Yeah. So I guess when you take a look at a chart like this, what, what are your kind of takeaways? You know, I, I think a couple things. I think um, to your point, uh, the the lengthening of of a cycle, I think, has to do just with with more participants, right? And you know, what these cycles represent is the natural uh, cycle following these having events, right? The having idea was so genius. Right? When you think about, you know, you, you reduce the block rewards. Well, the miners, you know, the people who are securing the network, uh, which I just hate that term because they're not, they're not digging up anything, but, but the security force uh, to make it the most secure, most powerful network computer on, on the planet, they, their costs don't change. So in order not to lose money, the price needs to adjust. And that price having a natural tailwind attracts interest, right? We, we've talked about this, right? And when our you know, significant others send us to the refrigerator, we can't see the ketchup unless it's moving. So when, when price moves, <laughs> uh, then, then it attracts attention. And so, but then the cycle uh, repeats where the speculators then show up and they buy something just because it's moving. Right? That's not investing. But if you buy something just because the price is moving, that is not investing. That is speculating or gambling uh, at its extreme. And so then when the price moves so far away from fair value, 
that's when the other side of the cycle happens. And, and so there is some natural logic to things extending as there are just more normal players that watch the having cycle play out. And then the speculators come. Um, so I do think there's a, a natural logic to it. Me too. I also think just in general, I think it's the natural evolution of any asset class over a period of time. Price gets set at the margin, right? So when you have a larger ecosystem with more investable options and it takes more incremental dollars to flow in to make the price go up, you don't see these crazy parabolic increases, but you see something that looks more healthy over time. And the reason why, you know, if you're listening to this thinking, well, I'm in crypto because I want to see these crazy 200Xs, what I would say to you is, Overall, I think the ideological goal of crypto should be how are we going to take this to a billion, two billion, the entire world using uh, these networks? And you're never going to do it with the volatility pattern that we see currently because volatility, while it creates opportunities, it kind of sucks. You get paid for enduring volatility in markets. I got to tell you, it's an unpleasant experience. Most of the world, most people who rely on assets to support their lives can't deal with 60 or 70% drawdowns. Then so if yeah. if you if you are relying on that volatility pattern then then you're really restricting who can use this asset class and it's never going to grow. So I look at charts like this and I kind of just think, you know, I'm not I'm not a charts guy, but it kind of seems like this is the right thing that should <laughs> this seems good to me. Um I don't know if you have a, a different Well, topic. one thing one thing on that, Michael and and you know, I've I've been talking a lot about this lately, which is this idea that, you know, volatility is not your enemy, mm. right? I haven't even had the shirt, right? Embrace volatility. Mm. Volatility is your friend. If, if you don't want volatility, you cannot have high returns. Full stop. Mm -hmm. There is no asset with low volatility. Zero, none, nada, zero. No asset with low volatility that generates high returns. If you want no volatility, Okay. You can put your money in cash or cash equivalents. Actually, then you have negative volatility through inflation, but we won't even talk about that. But, but you're not going to make any big returns. You can buy a bond and have a little bit of volatility and make a little bit higher returns. You can buy equities, get you know, 15, 18 vol and get you know, decent returns, double digit returns. But if you want to make you know, 100% returns, which shouldn't even really be possible, mm. um, you know, Amazon is compounded at 100% for 24 years <laughs> with 80 vol. Okay. Now, Bitcoin has compounded at 212% compounded for 12 and a half years with 80 vol. It has the same volatility as Amazon. And so this idea that, that you can have, have your cake and eat it too. And to your point, freaking out about every little drop. And this is the part that really makes no sense. The average age of the owner of Bitcoin in particular, and crypto broadly, but, but Bitcoin in particular, is not high. I mean, I don't know what the exact number is, but it's not high. It's not a boomer asset. Now, uh, if you are young, here's the thing. You want lower prices Agreed. to buy. Because the bulk of your acquisition is ahead of you, not behind you. So you don't want high prices every day. What you want are a series of volatile steps, roller coaster, back to the socks, roller coaster uh, peaks and troughs 
so that you can acquire. And the idea that you should buy it all at once is just silly. Right? It's like it's like the CNBC clip I did a number of years ago. And they're like, well, what should we do? It went from 10,000 to 8,000 last night. I'm like, buy it. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, buy That's it a great today. Clip. Buy it tomorrow and buy it next week and then buy it next month and then buy some next year. Don't think about it like, oh, I have to put it all in now. That's not the way this works. This is an asset for accumulating long-term wealth to opt out of the fiat fiasco, right? Which is getting worse and worse every day. And you don't want to put all your wealth in it, first of all. Second, you don't want to put it all in at one time. And every time there is a dip. See, here's the thing. If you have done the work and you have conviction, a dip is a buying opportunity. If you have not done the work and you have no conviction, a dip is frightening and will cause you to sell. And it's why the average investor, right? Not in crypto, but the average investor in, in traditional assets, if you just bought and held bonds over the last 25 years, you would have made about five and a half percent. If you bought and hold stocks, okay, over the last 25 years, you would have made about 10%. What did the average investor make? Two. Why? Because every time it went down, whichever asset they were holding, they sold because they freaked because they hadn't done the work to understand and to get conviction. So I don't know. I Drawdowns are painful. And, and, the, and the big drawdowns, to your point, an 80% drawdown, um, but it's not 80% drawdown and stay there, right? It, it may be an 80% drawdown over a period of time, 12, 18 months, and we will have a bear market. In fact, we've been talking about this for the last few weeks, right? Sure. When the, the launch of the, the Bitcoin ETF happened, I said to you, it's possible. I didn't say, I didn't predict it and get, you know, I said, it's possible that this is a buy the rumor, sell the news. And I think it went up, you know, made a new high a couple more times, but, but it, could be that that was kind of, you know, the cyclical peak and that we are now in the bear phase. But I had a really good conversation with a Bitcoin billionaire yesterday. Um, I won't name it, but he's a really cool guy, lives over in Asia. And he made his money the old fashioned way <laughs> by being early and buying and holding and, and he does trade. Now he trades not so much in, in Bitcoin, but in, in other things. And long story short, we had an interesting conversation about how this cycle is likely to be somewhat different than the previous two in 13 and 17. And what he meant by that was that it is likely that, that we don't need as sharp a correction this time because we didn't have as big a speculative excess. And so I think that's an interesting perspective. Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, the leading prime brokerage solution for all things digital assets, providing secure custody, trading, and financing to an institutional suite of clients. On the retail side of things, I am more than happy to make this endorsement because I have been a custody customer of Coinbase since the day that I got into crypto. 
I still keep the vast majority of my assets there actually, and I do it for one reason and one reason alone, so that I can sleep easy at night knowing that my funds are safe. It's the same reason when family or friends ask me, where should I buy my first Bitcoin? I direct them to Coinbase. And now, finally, when institutions are starting to ask, what's the most safe infrastructure to use? I only point them in one direction, to Coinbase Prime. And the reason that I do that is because it is peace of mind. When it comes to security, everything is top of the line on this platform, and it's a white glove experience to boot. They've been securing client assets at scale for eight years, which as of Q2 of this year is $180 billion. They have an industry-leading insurance policy, and they're audited by Blue Chip auditors so that you can sleep easy at night too. So stop listening to me, click the link at this bottom of this episode, and go check them out for yourself. And when you get there, tell them that I sent you because I love to get credit. When it comes to crypto, security and custody is paramount. Introducing this episode's sponsor, Ledger, your secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto assets. I know I've got a smart audience, so I'm assuming slash hoping that most of you already have your Ledger hardware wallet, but just in case you don't, this is how I think about it. I wouldn't get into a car if I couldn't wear a seatbelt, and I don't operate in crypto unless I can do it for my Ledger hardware wallet. Crypto is really exciting, but it is still the Wild West. There are lots of risks, and Ledger is the easiest way to make sure that you are still protected. And the best part about Ledger is that you don't need to make any trade-offs between security of your funds and utility of your assets because Ledger has Ledger Live, which is a software it syncs right up to your Ledger hardware wallet, and you can do anything that you'd want to do with your crypto assets. You can easily send and receive, you can buy and exchange, and you can get access to staking. And they've actually started to aggregate some of the best DeFi apps and services out there. Two of my favorites, Paraswap, a decentralized aggregator, and they've got Lido for staking. And stay tuned, I'm going to keep you guys updated. They've got some really cool services uh, coming out soon. Ave, Compound, and One Inch among them. So if you take one thing away from this, guys, please, please, please make sure that you're protected in this space. Get yourself a Ledger hardware wallet today and start using the Ledger Live app. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Thank me later. I think if you look at these, I mean, you know, if you listen to the interview, which I recommend everyone does with Bankless and Ben Cohen, who they, they go into way more way more detail here uh, than, than we're going into. But a lot of people have compared this current cycle with the 2013 double bubble cycle. And if, if you layer over this trend of a lengthening cycle with what looks something on the surface, what it looks like the, the similar to the 2013 bubble, then you would actually expect uh, you know, the double bubble to be more drawn out and sort of lengthened. But you know, th- this idea of volatility, I'm really starting to think, I mean, people say this all the time, but I'm really starting to gain conviction in this idea that it's appropriate to look at everything in crypto as an overcorrection to a problem with our current institutions. So you obviously have Bitcoin as a direct response to banking and the failures in banking. And, you know, there's this guy, Diego Perea, who who has this really great framework for what he calls anti-bubbles. And if bubbles, he uses the definition, Soros' definition of a bubble which is there is an idea, uh, you know, some, some an, an asset in markets are basically artificially being held up. It's a very simple definition. Yep. And, and the anti-bubble then would be there are, there's an asset in markets that are being artificially suppressed. And one of the, the assets, asset classes that he calls out is volatility as an asset. And you can look at what central banks have done yep. over the course of the last 30 years, lowering interest rates consistently as actually suppressing volatility. And you literally just look, it's, I mean, 
you can look at the S&P, you can look at the NASDAQ, whatever. It's basically a straight line up. And I understand why. In, in theory, if you could have an asset that starts at $10 and over the course of the year, go, 10 years goes to $100, that's actually worth a lot, but in a linear way. That asset is worth a lot more than an asset that starts at $10, ends up at $100 over 10 years, but fluctuates a lot. And the reason is because you can get a lot more volatility over something that appreciates in a predictable way. You can lever yourself. And I think if you look at the financial yep. system over the course of however many years, that's basically what's happened. People prefer assets that go up in a somewhat steady, predictable way. Central banks essentially favor that. They, this, the current system in place supports that idea. And in a totally indirect way, but I think you could pretty accurately make this argument, that's favorable to boomers because boomers, you know, if, if you're depending on these assets for your livelihood, you, you, you know, Mark, I, I'm totally with you. I think you get paid for volatility, but if you're a certain age and you're relying on this stuff for your retirement, I get, I get why people own bonds, right? Because it won't go down. No, uh, no, you no, know, no. To- okay, Michael, yeah, that is, that is so, uh, so insightful and so eloquently stated. And, and I, and I wish it were, were actually true. I mean, it, it is actually, actually true, but I wish it were the real cause of this parabolic, you know, increase in boomer assets. Uh, and, and I'm a boomer and I'm, I'm criticizing boomer assets, but uh, I don't feel like a boomer, right? Um, no. But the reality is this is just money illusion, right? The, the government overspent, they overpromised, and we've talked about this, an entitlement is a promise you make to yourself that you don't fund and you ask your kids to pay for. And so they made all these promises that there's no chance they can, they can keep. And so their only chance, right, to help the masses, these 83 million boomers, uh, have any chance of, of paying for the overpriced health care and all the things that the government has created uh, their own inflation in. Uh, is to elevate the value of their assets artificially through devaluation of the currency. And look, this is the end of every republic's history. Uh, every empire's history has this bout of of hyperinflation of assets, not hyperinflation like wheelbarrows of money, although we may get there too. But it's, it's the hypervaluation of, of assets so that there's this illusion that I'm rich. But here's the thing, if if your stock portfolio goes up 20%, but the price of food also goes up, then you're not better off because yes, you feel like you have enough money, but the average retiree, this is a scary thought. I think the average retiree has like $200,000 in their you know, retirement savings. That is not enough for you know, end of life. It's just not. And there are certainly people who are fine and well off and have millions, but the average it's not a good thing. And so, and then there's another piece of that, Michael, that, that bugs me, right? Which is 49% of people in this country don't own a share of stock. They don't have, you know, stock portfolios. They don't have retirement accounts. They don't have a pension. They own nothing. They rent their apartment. They rent their car. They go to work. They live their life. They buy their food. They buy their medicine. They make hard decisions every day. They don't own anything and they're not being helped in any way, shape or form by this hyperinflation of elite assets. 
no chance. Yeah. They're making, they're being making worse off. And this is a, you now there's a book, uh, Jill Carlson, I think wrote this book, you know, war on small business. He said this whole hyper uh, QE is, is a war on small business. No, it's a war on the citizens. It's literally a war on the citizenry and the masses. And that's why Bitcoin's so important. Mm. Not that I feel strongly I about it. No, I had no, no strong opinions from you. All right. I do want to get, I, I would love to get your opinion actually on some data that's come out on the economy in general. I mean, this is going to support a lot of a lot of what we're both saying here, which is, so we're looking at the Philadelphia uh, Fed Manufacturing Index, which is, you know, uh, not at its high, but close to its high, or certainly recovering or looking like it's part of a positive trend, right? Which is good. All right. So we've got some manufacturing activity that's going on, but you also have, yep. uh, you're looking at unfilled orders, and that's also peaking in general. So yep. kind of paints this idea of the economy where actually it does look like demand is picking up, but supply is unable to keep up with what's going on with demand. I'm zooming through a couple charts yep. here. In, and at the same time, what we're looking at is U.S. initial and continuing jobless claims. So to just provide context for the audience here, a huge problem, right, and something that the Fed has been particularly tuned to is the unemployment rate in the US. It's a big it's one of it's one of the dual mandates, right, that the Fed has. And yep. It's significant because you know what we're looking at is continuing or uh, initial jobless claims actually returning to something that looks like pre-pandemic, pre-covid levels. So I guess to me yep. what this they're kind of conflicting ideas here, right? Because on the one hand it looks like actually maybe these are supporting the same thing. So it looks like inflation is actually picking up when you look at these two slides because you've got demand recovering, supply unable to keep up. Okay, and now you have a labor force that looks like some of the slack is being shaken out of it. People are going back to work finally. And, you know, how do you – because one of the things that was keeping the Fed from tightening policy, right, either it looks like they're starting to taper. Uh, the bond market, you can make a strong argument, is actually pricing in rate hikes for 2022, uh, you know, for the first time in a while. But, you know, when you look at a labor market where the participation is similar to pre-COVID levels, you look at an environment where we're consistently seeing CPI prints, you know, 4 to 6%. Don't, don't you think they have to rear it in a little bit in 2022? Or I don't know. What do you think about all this? Yeah. I mean, it, it's a perfect analysis. Um, and and I think it's, it's, it's the lip service that they will pay but I think there's zero chance that they can, right? And it's the same argument that we made in 2013, right? Same argument we made in 2017, that emergency stimulus was no longer necessary. Yeah, it's interesting. I, it, it just hit me, right? Because I actually made that case exactly as you described on CNBC in 2013 hmm. and in 2017. And now we're talking about in 2021, which is the Bitcoin cycles. That's interesting correlation. <laughs> that is and, interesting. You know, you think about it. In 2013, you know, we were clearly past the trough of the global financial crisis, and yet we held interest rates at emergency levels. And I remember I was on, I was on, and they said, you know, what do you think, you know, Chairman Yellen should do? I said, I think she should raise interest rates to four percent right now. And they were like at 0.5. And I'm like, oh my god, that would cause a recession. I'm like, no, no, it wouldn't. Interest rates. Uh, the Fed funds rate has been roughly equivalent to nominal GDP for better part of 100 years until the last few years. And that's what it should be, right? It, it is a, it, if it's 
lower than that, then it's excessively stimulative and you get these, these hyperinflations in, in financial assets. If it's above that, then you get a restriction and you get bad economic activity. Um, it's, it's kind of why, uh, you know, bond rates have roughly been equal to inflation over again, multiple hundred years. And so the real return on holding bonds is basically zero. You don't make any real return uh, or cash. I'm sorry, cash um, bond. You make about 2% above uh, inflation. So I think the challenge we have here is uh, in 2007, uh, Japan said, we're going to end QQE. 2007, right? 14 years yeah. ago, they said they were going to end QQE. And if you had a picture, I'll draw it for you in the air of the Bank of Japan's balance sheet, it would be parabolic, straight up, straight up. I mean, like worst in the world, mm. over 220% of GDP now. So they didn't stop QQE. Interest rates were supposed to go up. They're still zero. Inflation was supposed to go up, still zero. Uh, GDP growth was supposed to go up, still zero. So they've been mired in this funk for 14 years after saying they were going to end QQE, which they never did. Europe, when Draghi left a couple of years ago, said, oh, we're done with, with uh, and they actually didn't call it QE. We don't do, they don't do QE in Europe. They call it bond purchase programs, BPP. So uh, Lagarde makes Draghi look like a piker. I mean, look at ECB's balance sheet. I mean, it's more parabolic than Japan or the Fed. I mean, monster bond purchases. So the idea that, that we suddenly are gonna taper no, it's, there's, a, there's a subtle slowing of one of the big three every year. They get together in WEF and they decide, okay, who's, who's in the hot box? Um, and one person doesn't get to devalue their currency as much. And so that currency strengthens. And you've actually seen that this year. The dollar, quote unquote, is strengthened. Now, it actually hasn't strengthened because if you look at it relative to Bitcoin, it's down a lot or gold, it's down a lot. But relative to the euro and the yen, which have weakened more, so here's the crazy thing, right? It's, it's like, oh, well, I'm strong because these other two things are super weak. No, it just means you're weak. It doesn't mean you're strong. And so I, I just think it's our turn in the hot box and we haven't been able to devalue the currency quite as much as we would have liked. And so we're going to jawbone this pause. And the market has predicted higher rates since 2009. Yeah. I love, it's one of my favorite charts. If you look at the forward curve of rates, it's like these upward sloping lines. Oh, we're going to get back to three, 4%. And every year it's wrong. And so there's just this, it's like a, I don't even know what you call it, like worm tail um, of, of this, you know, expected Fed hikes, zero chance. And on inflation, the, the 4% prints and the 6% prints, it's just base effect, right? You shut down the economy, you made oil go down a gazillion percent. And now oil's up 100% in the last year. It's up 70% this year. That will flow right out. Uh, and oil's not going up 100% from here. It's just not. Um, and so they'll have a negative um, influence on uh, inflation over the next 12 months. Used car prices are not going up another 100%. Uh, they're not because the chip shortage will get solved. And so those two things alone are going to push inflation back down. It'll be sub 2% probably within 12 months. Uh, GDP growth will be sub 2% uh, next year for sure. Uh, probably, probably recessionary um, because even though people are going back to work, um, 
basically they're going back to work because their government stimulus checks have gone away and now they actually have to go back to work, but they don't make very much money in many of those jobs that they're going back to. And so the idea that we're going to have this sudden boom in economic activity, I, I think is, is kind of silly. And, and you see that in all the data, right? Um, but that's, that's a different, maybe. Opinion. No, I, you know, I think this is all very interesting. You're, you're seeing all of this play out in real time. So I actually wanted to bring up this, um, something that I thought was very interesting in general. And then just the last bit of high level context that I'll set for you here, Tyler and I used to debate pretty often between this shift from capital back to labor. I used kind of beating this yeah. drum that we're yep. seeing a shift from capital back to labor. Now, that trend was really initiated by kind of this joint Reaganism, uh, Maggie Thatcherism, right, that you saw kind of in the 1980s. And what I thought was really interesting was what you, what you are starting to see, and my, my, my pushback on Tyler always was, I just don't see, you know, for real inflation, but all, what you need is salary growth. You need real wage growth yep. in a country, in developed countries, countries like the US. I just don't see how we're going to do that with the access that we have to China's labor market. And what you actually are seeing right now is wage increases in general. And, you know, I, I've got this quote from, uh, or this summary of what happened with the John Deere Warehouse workers on the right, uh, there was a 30-day strike, and what they ended up with was a 10% salary raise, an $8,500 bonus, additional 5% raises 2023, 2025, 3% uh, yearly bonuses, yada, yada. On the left, what you're seeing is up for negotiation. There are about 70 large union contracts that are set to expire in Canada by year, and so you know that those are all going to be renegotiated. Canada's even more shut down than the U.S. is. And just to provide some interesting history to this, Maggie Thatcher, so she came to power in 1979 in the UK. A lot of what she did was actually break the back of unions there at the time. So you had the Oilermaker Union, right? She brought Japanese Oilermakers over, uh, the, the auto, you know, domestic auto manufacturers. She brought Nissan over famously to start manufacturing in the UK. So she actually started this trend of it was too far on the one side, right? Wage power unions, they were crushing growth. She you know, dragged globalization in and she drove down wages and it made it favorable to asset owners, owners of capital back then. And basically that's been a really long trend based ever since the 1980s, so about yep. a 40 year trend. Yep. It looks like, I mean, I'm not saying with conviction that it's going to reverse, but this yeah. is what that would start to look like, right? I mean, what do you think about my, <laughs> that was like a two minute spiel, but. Hunt, no, hunt, it's, it's a, again, super, super analysis, great analysis. And uh, I think it's very similar though, not to the eighties. Mm. Um, Cause in the eighties, what we had was this massive demographic boom, mm. right? All of us boomers were turning 40 and 40 to 60 year olds are super productive and they are super efficient. And, and so you had this, this wonderful period. Um, that's not the case now, right? There's, there's old people in Europe and old people in the US and lots of 65 to 85 year olds. And while they're perfectly nice people, they're not productive and, and they're not very efficient. So I, I think this is gonna look much more, I think like the forties uh, after the depression. And I think that's where we're headed. And, and the trouble is, you know, the, the Fed turned a garden variety recession in 1937. 
uh, into the Great Depression by trying to raise rates from zero. And they only raised them 25 basis points and literally turned the uh, you know, Great Recession into the Great Depression. And so I'm not predicting that again, um, but what I am saying is that there, you're 100% right that, that a move toward nationalism is negative for uh, companies' ability to hold down wages. 100% true. But what they will end up doing, unfortunately, is they will just cut people. If you force them to raise wages, it's, it's like this whole stupid idea of, of increasing minimum wage. It's just dumb. That's just a war on small business. That puts certain businesses out of business. Mm. And why should a government fix what the market should determine? If someone's willing to do a job for $10, why should you tell them they have to pay 15? If someone's willing to do it for 750, why can't that person have the job? Maybe they have different living agreements. Maybe they live with their parents. Maybe they live with another family. Why does, why does, it's like the government fixing interest rates. It's just stupid. Price fixing of any kind has never been a good idea, will never be a good idea. And so what's going to happen is yes, deer will say, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll raise your rates. But a couple months from now, my guess is that about 10% of the workforce is going to get a pink slip. And then what do those people do? Now, if you're one of the 90%, you're like, oh, this is great. I got more money. But that 10%, not so much. And particularly if if growth rolls over the way I, I think it is rolling over and there's less demand for tractors, right? I mean, there's a lot of tractor demand right now because there's you haven't been able to get a tractor. Like literally, we made an order. Our refrigerator has been on the fritz. And we ordered one in April and we're getting it on Monday. It's, I know. Okay. It's nuts. My and so that, all of that gap, that air gap that was caused arguably by uh, China. In fact, there's this, I haven't read it, but I'm tempted to read it. It's a little bit sensational and the guy's a little bit sensational, but there's a book called Snake Oil. And he has some really interesting stuff about how he believes this whole thing that we're living through was engineered by China to create the Great Reset, mm -hmm. to basically create this, this move to nationalism and away from globalism so that they could then emerge as the great savior. Because they've gone around the world with their Belt and Road Initiative, and they've been buying up strategic assets, and they own just about everything. Well, I, th I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Some of the videos they this guy shows of like you know the the welding people in the apartment that turned out to be fake and all that stuff. It's just really it's kind of it's kind of kind of yeah. wild. Um, the one that really got me was there was a video at the beginning of, of the pandemic of remember literally people just walking down the street in China and, and dropping dead. And like a, a, a car pulls up with these guys in hazmat suit and they pick up the body and everybody's like, <gasps> no one dropped dead in the street from COVID, not one right. person. So that was a weird thing. That was a weird thing. I agree. I mean, I mean, you know, the one belt, one road thing, they're really running the U S playbook, right? That, you know, uh, confessions of an economic hitman type thing get the yes. world indebted to you yes Michael, yeah, I mean, yes that's what they're doing smart right it's what i guess i would do if i was if i was the uh superior ruler or whatever she is now she's been she has been elevated if you actually had a 30-year plan 
because you become the supreme ruler and you didn't have to worry about getting reelected and you didn't have to worry about, you know, getting paid soft money through lobbying. Yeah, you would actually think long term instead of the short termism that we have in the US with our crazy political system. I think I think but, in general, you know, and, that, and I want to transition to stories and I want to start talking about uh, you and Gemini as well. But, you know, what, what worries me just about historical settings in general, if you if you read back about what Europe was like at the outset of World War One, you know, you ha- you had this yep. system of power that was proven to be pretty incorrect. You had a lot of you had rising nationalism back then as well. It's not a perfect analogy, but you know, people back then thought a war would have been impossible. I mean, I mean, so literally, just put yourself in this position. I mean, how crazy! So all the all the thoughts that everything that we say about a real kinetic war. I think this is cope because people will say the next war will be cyber war. And I think that that's literally just justifying yep. the fact that it seems like it's impossible to have a kinetic war. And if you look throughout periods of history, you can read in, in the literature leading up to it. People thought it was impossible. People thought they had these structures where nations were depending on each other and they were all interwoven and there could never be a war for exercise. Mm-hmm. But guess what? Human idiocy finds a way. And we do find ways to have these wars. Now put yourself Okay, so you just had World War One, right, in the early 90s. We'll never have another war like this. We, this is fresh in everyone's mind, yada, yada. 20 years later, we have another larger war. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just goes to show you, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not predicting or hoping that that happens, but I'm just saying history is rep- – what's that expression? It's too crazy for fiction, you know? Yes, we, we just exactly. Have, it's it's exactly. too crazy for fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I do want to get to this Gemini race because this is huge. First of all, big congratulations for Morgan Creek for leading this. Uh, it was a $7 billion valuation. I think this is, this is the first time, right, that the Twins have taken outside capital. So congrats yes, first on time. Yeah, they, leading they that. Funded, they funded it. Look, I, I mean, so one, thank you for the congrats. And, you know, here, mm-hmm. here's, a, here's a really cool thing. Um, mm-hmm. And we didn't actually realize this until yesterday when we were kind of going through um, of the uh, five largest – financings in the history of blockchain ecosystem we've been involved in three of them that's actually pretty cool i i'm nice. i'm really kind of psyched about that given that <laughs> you know, we right, started from go. a standing start uh in 2018 uh to create more greek digital and, and we just led you know one of the most iconic companies in the space and look i'm so excited about this one because it's rare that you get to partner with founders of of this magnitude i mean mm. tyler and cameron are are truly incredible uh think about it all of us would like to be right once on some big thing right they arguably depending on which side you want to listen to invented social media now maybe zuck perfected it and all that good stuff but but arguably they they were one of the co-inventors of social media that, that's a pretty big deal Right, pretty big deal. But that wasn't so, enough, right? Because <laughs> then they, um, I, I, I say this actually all the time. I was introduced to Bitcoin the same month as Cameron and Tyler. They're multi-billionaires and I'm not. So how, how'd that work, right? Now, I, was, I didn't have $500 million settlement from Zuck to go invest in Bitcoin, but I had enough to be dangerous. But I, I didn't, see it as clearly as they did, as quickly as they did. I, I do see it now. I mean, 
look, I even got my, my buy Bitcoin sign back there, right? So um, I definitely saw it, but I didn't see it as quickly as those guys did. And then, you know, after they got on airplanes and they took their seed phrase and they deposited 12 separate, you know, uh, banks, they're like, you know, this, this is stupid. We need to create a, a safekeeping. We need to create an exchange. So they create Gemini and Gemini is top 10 exchange and, you know, pretty cool. And that's not enough, right? That, that would be more than enough for any of us. But no, they're like, you know, this NFT thing, digital property rights, they bought Nifty Gateway for $1 million. It's worth way more than $1 million. And that's one of the most exciting things about Gemini to us is, is their, their incredible vision, their incredible dynamism, their incredible charisma. Uh, and, and this is the, the little secret that nobody knows that, that we're really excited about. The reason that we wanted to lead this deal, the reason we worked so hard to win the lead and, and to put uh, a big chunk of cash, 75 million bucks, uh, into this company um, is they took the really hard road of becoming regulatorily compliant Agreed. in New York state, right? Yep. Which is really, really hard. And they, I think, have the inside track to becoming the institutional custodian. Look, Coinbase has done a great job and we're investors in Coinbase and we love Coinbase and we love Brian and they rock Sponsor the show. Awesome. But I think, I think Gemini has the shot to be the trusted advisor for institutions because they don't get in Twitter wars with the SEC. I mean, look, they're great guys. Uh, I, I'm just a huge fan of the business. I, I think to your point as well, I mean, if you read the Ben Mesrick book on them, I mean, the first oh. one, you know, he, he kind of wrote them off and then he was like, man, I was totally wrong about these guys. You go back and, you know, they have this really interesting story, which is so, okay. So put yourself in this mental position, right? You helped start Facebook. You got a big settlement, but come on, you know, you lost a lot of that economic pie. Imagine what that would do to you come psychologically. On. And lots of people say, oh yeah, you know, but it would have a lot of money, but you would always be thinking in your head, this is how much I had. Then what ends up happening is they go and try to invest, BVC investors in Silicon Valley, but they're locked yep. out because everyone needs to sell into Facebook, right, to get acquired. Absolutely. So just, I mean, and then, you know, they find the one corner of the world and God damn, did they end up being right, which is crypto, which has nothing to do with Silicon Valley. And, and you know, I, I sound like one of these people that I thought was a lunatic when I got into the space four years ago, but I, I really do think... You know, there's a lot of focus right now on crypto disrupting banking. I think the focus uh, soon is going to turn to Web2 and disruption of social media. I think that will actually be the story over the course of the next, let's say, three to five years. Now, here's yep. the other thing I want to get your perspective on because I'm noticing a trend here in general. So forget this. Like a couple months ago, Coinbase, they had that $2 billion debt offering. They said, we are shoring up our balance sheet in the event of a bear, right? It's hard for me to not notice. Like we report on a lot of news. I am seeing these capital raises. These are mega capital raises, right? To your point, you're involved in uh, three of the yep. largest uh, ever. Um, I noticed that uh, DCG, there was that sale of secondary that they did the other day, but also, let me pull yep. up my notes, they also did a $600 million debt capital raise as well. So I'm just starting to notice lots of companies in the space 
taking some chips off the table. I, you know, to me, that says maybe folks are starting to prepare uh, for something that looks like a pullback. Am I wrong? Am I reading too much into it? I don't know. What do you think about all that? Um, I, I think you're I, I, one subtlety. I, I don't think uh, a debt issuance is, is definitely not taking chips off the table in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. And and the Gemini raise, I mean, Tyler and Cameron took zero dollars off the table. I mean, zero. They, they didn't sell any shares. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason that uh, you know, Gemini did this financing. Look, it's a minority financing. I mean, we, you know, right. everyone can do the math. You know, we, did, we didn't get majority control of, of this business because they built so much value. Uh, the reason they did this is they wanted external pricing to say this is a valuable business because they are going to go public, right? It is going mm-hmm. to be a public company. It is going to be one of the important companies of the next you know, hundred plus years. And, and that's all going to happen. And, you know, we're, we're on the board with them, which is kind of cool. And, you know, it, it's all going in that direction. So, so their fundraise was growth capital, right? They want to grow into this opportunity uh, to become the trusted advisor for institutions and, and build out the nifty gateway and, and other things. Now that said, your instincts on having a fortress balance sheet are absolutely right. Now, Coinbase is unique and uh, Gemini is unique in that they're actually profitable businesses. There's so many businesses out there that are not profitable. So many across many industries from cloud to car makers to, to all kinds of things, just not profitable. So they, they really should think about fortress balance sheets, but these guys, because they're profitable. Now, will they be less profitable in a bear interestingly history has said not necessarily because people actually you know transact and if you get paid for transactions um so that is part of it. on the dcg one i think they actually did take some chips but they got a lot of chips so, they got a lot of chips yeah and, and they got a lot of chips and and look, barry is awesome and a genius and, and michael uh those guys are uh, I mean, they've they've executed flawlessly. They've they've I think they got 140 some odd investments across the ecosystem. They're they're amazing group, and they deserve to be valued at the level they're valued. And for them to to you know, raise some capital as things are going to you know go through cycles, awesome. With you. So I, I don't think it's so much fortress balance sheet because you want to fend off the the invaders. I, I think it's much more hey. Those who have liquidity when no one else does rule. Mm. And so you get to buy the things. Like if you go back, if this does turn out to be like the 1940s and we get things that start to you know, go down in value, uh, which I think is going to happen, uh, if you happen to have liquidity, right, that's when you make great fortunes. And one of our first clients at Morgan Creek when I started in 2004 uh, was a family, the, the grandfather had bought Toledo scales out of the Great Depression. Right? People got away stuff. The company basically went bankrupt because they didn't have enough liquidity in, in the downturn. And so I do think, you're, again, your instincts, as always, are, are perfect on this and that, that it is something that they need to think about. Um, but in these particular cases, I think Coinbase and Gemini and DCG 
Uh, although DCG is a little different in that GBTC is in a precarious place, mm. right? Selling at that discount is interesting for investors because you can buy Bitcoin for, you know, uh, pennies on the dollar. But this issue of what happens if, and I do say if, not when, if a spot ETF is approved, will that have implications for their business? If they can convert it, yeah. then probably less That's implications. But yeah. Who so lot, lots of things to go on there, but but they got a lot of other good businesses at uh, DCG to yeah. to uh, benefit from. I'll tell you one that I think is a slept on business that I think they're about to nail, and the reason is is because I will probably become a customer. They're launching something that looks like crypto native financial advisory, and the reason I think yeah. this is so genius is because I would never at this point give my money to a financial advisor to manage because I'm not going to hop yeah. on the phone with someone yep. who tells me yep. that I should be in XYZ stocks, XYZ butts. No, you know, again, I sound like one of those lunatics that I thought. Well, don't go with them, Michael. Go go with us, right? I, Dan Held and I have been talking about this mm. and it's so perfect because we're going to call it Held Capital, mm. which is, or HODL Capital. Um, but yeah, I, I totally think this is a great idea. I mean, Gen Dan and I were talking about this a couple months ago in San Francisco. Genius. It, 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 I, it's going to be the biggest. So I, I'm So, okay. I am adjusting my thesis on a lot of different things. Stuff that I thought TradFi was going to take and own in this space. I no longer, I think there, I think there is at least, let me, let me, I think there is at least a pretty decent chance that the crypto native solution will end up being more successful in this particular ecosystem than TradFi in here and wealth management. I've just been banging on the drum about this for a year and a half. I just think it makes so much sense with this space. It's their natural buyer of crypto assets in general. And now you actually have so much wealth that was created in this space. You know, the people that... Well, and, and it is. And look, and Tyrone is doing this and I'm actually going to do on-ramp capital, on-ramp capitals uh, show later today. Mm. Um, so uh, there's there's a lot of really smart people uh, addressing this issue and, and your again your instincts are are dead on so i have to run i know you do so you got this call let's is, wrap is it there up anything here. that we didn't get to that we need to get to no nothing we got it all mark this has been great as per usual let's wrap it here i will see you next week my friend take care all right thank you have a good weekend and uh we will uh pick it back up in the new week will do cheers